0: There has never, ever in the history of humanity been a successful, secular civilization. There's not one. Like, rack your brain, you'll be thinking about this in a few months, you're like, what about, nope. <laughs> um, it just doesn't exist. Like, every, every dominant civilization, and non-dominant civilizations, predominantly, have had, like, a, uh, a super-dominant religion. Um, It's true with Rome, it's true with Egypt, it's true with the Greeks, whatever. Uh, That doesn't mean that uh, there was no room for any other religion in that civilization. Uh, But it does mean that there was a sort of super dominant religion that defined your basic culture and your basic sort of uh, sense of uh, ethics, of justice, of those sorts of things.
1: Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, streaming from the great state of Arizona. I'm here on November 7th. It's the day before Election Day, taping with a native Arizona. and We'll get to that in a second, but uh, really grateful for Proverbs Media Group letting us use their studio out here. Their team is fantastic, and uh, they were very gracious to let us uh perch up and and uh, you know have a conversation with some local Arizona talent. As always, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find uh, the backlog of this podcast. You can find everything else we have cooking here at American Moment. You can go to AmericanMoment.org slash join and fill out the form, and we'll talk to you about how to get you more substantively involved. Uh, there's a lot of things going on that have meant that there's a – a huge dearth of talent in DC. And so if you are talented, smart, and you believe in the things we talk about on this show, chances are there's a role for you up in Washington. So be sure to go fill that out. Today, I was honored to be joined by a good friend and a real, I think, role model for what patriotic, and capable involvement in politics looks like, Chris Buskirk. Chris is the publisher of American Greatness, a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times. He's also written for The Washington Post, Spectator World, USA Today, The Hill, The New York New Criterion, and other publications. He's a frequent contributor to Fox News, NPR's Morning Edition, PBS News Hour, and Hardball, and he also regularly appears on CNN. He's the author of the book Trump versus the Leviathan, and along with Seth Liebson, American Greatness, How Conservatism, Inc. Missed the 2016 Election, and What the Establishment Needs to Learn. It's a bit of a chunky mouthful, but uh, we'll forgive him for that. He was a Publius Fellow at the Claremont Institute and received a fellowship from the Earhart Foundation. He's a serial entrepreneur who has built and sold businesses in financial services and digital marketing, and received his BA from claremont McKenna. McKenna College. Um, He has also been the person running the super PAC for the Blank Masters for Senate campaign. I believe it's called Serving Arizona PAC and is involved in all sorts of different dark arts projects, really making sure that this agenda of American greatness that we talk about all the time on this podcast is actually implemented in the infrastructure of the conservative movement. Uh, We had a wide ranging conversation on all sorts of fantastic things, including his background, American greatness's background, what winning would look like for our side, uh, the religious right, uh, and even uh, niche right-wing bodybuilders on the internet and what they bring to the table. It was great. Uh, I think the world of Chris, he's super smart, and I hope you guys enjoy the episode. We'll go now to Chris Buster. Chris, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks. We're taping On Location in Arizona, your, your neck of the woods. Um, I'd be very curious to hear how you ended up here, you have an interesting background on like most people in politics, certainly most people who run magazines, you're vastly more interesting than them. Uh what uh what exactly got you to be the Chris Buskirk you are today?
0: So uh where should I start? What do you think? Like we don't want to give as, the, as early. Wanna, it's not like uh we don't want to give that too much of the origin story, but I guess just um I'll give you the sort of the cliff notes version mm-hmm. maybe. And uh so as you know, like I started American Greatness in twenty sixteen. Mm-hmm. Um I've been pretty political, um, my whole life. Uh, I grew up in a family that was like, we talked about politics at the dinner table, but you know, we were not like weirdly political. we were just that family that was interested in it. And my, uh, you know, my father, I say all the time, you know, he, um, you know, he was a volunteer for Goldwater in 64. He like had a, the, uh, subscription to National Review from the 60s up mm-hmm. until like uh, the early 2000s, at uh, which point he was uh, at the at the cutting edge there. And he realized that uh, this this isn't the conservatism I signed up for in the 60s. And he uh, uh, rightly canceled that subscription, you know, before everybody else realized mm-hmm. uh, that they, that uh, uh, National Review was no longer with the middle of the country that they represented, kind of a, a D.C. sort of. Uh, class of people who were um, sort of segmented off from the rest of us mm-hmm. uh, but we talked about that type of thing as I say about uh, at, at dinner and, you know I was just always interested in it and you know as a as a graduate student I was uh, I, I was an intern at the Claremont Institute and uh, I was really you know I just really Thought that um, the way Claremont thought about uh, what the country was and the founding was was right and was interesting, and I thought that had implications for what I wanted to do with my life, and I was I was sort of right and wrong, and I was like right at a really high level, and I was wrong at a, at a at a micro level. Because um, when I was working there, I realized um, that the work was important, but also that it fundamentally was probably not for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Like think tank life was it just didn't work for me. And like I remain close to all those guys. I think they do great work. But like you got to figure out like where you fit in life. And in your early 20s, you kind of sometimes have false starts like that. And so I. um I, after I, after I left graduate school, I moved back to Arizona where, you know, where we're broadcasting from today, where I grew up and I was an entrepreneur for, you know, 20 years basically in finance related businesses. And then, um, I'd sold a a company and then in 2015, um, you know, I like when people ask, like, how did, like, how did you wind up getting so involved in politics? Where did American greatness come from? You know, I sold this company, and then in so 2015, as uh, I always tell the story, I said, "Well, I don't know if you guys heard, but there was this crazy orange uh, real estate developer from Manhattan with an enormously <laughs> long red tie, but it looks good, uh, it looks fantastic, super great, the yeah. best tie ever. Yeah, um, makes it, everyone
1: look thin and beautiful."
0: Beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. Um, no, but he, you know, I, I did not. I will say this: I didn't get Trump immediately as a candidate, but I got him quickly. Mm-hmm. So I was like, there are those people who are like golden escalator from then on. That was not me. But you know, by my my sort of Trump epiphany was after the first Republican uh, debate, and that was when I that was when I kind of looked at uh, what Trump was talking about. I was like. Hold up, hold up a second. Maybe he's actually serious about this stuff. And it was like uh, China or uh, I think the the, the the preferred pronunciation is China. China. Um, yeah. There's China. There was manufacturing. Uh, there was sort of, you know, looking for a renaissance of the American middle class. There was immigration, all these things. And he's talking about these things. And, you you look at there's like, you know, there's like 87 other guys up there on the stage. right? And this one guy is talking about this one set of issues, Trump and everybody else is still kind of doing like the neo-bush thing Mm. and that was when um i thought this is interesting because this is like what i always thought like the republican party and the conservatism was about but we sort of obviously have strayed from that path uh over particularly over the bush years and, and during the obama years too and um I went, you know, I just sort of did my research on like, oh, my gosh, this guy's actually serious. Like Trump has been talking about China and manufacturing since like the 80s, like Mm -hmm. literally since the 80s. Um, And so, you know, my, um, you know, shortly thereafter, that was August of 15. And shortly thereafter, um, I realized that I kind of had to make a decision. And I was at a place in my life and in my career where I like I had the I. I, I could make a decision. Let's put it that way. I could um, either continue in business, um, try and make more money. Um, uh-huh. It's a good thing to do. Got a family. Um, they really like eating. <laughs> uh, or I could, uh, because I was at a crossroads, I thought, you know, this, if I'm going to become m- like meaningfully more involved in politics, like this is the time. Like here's this guy. I don't know if he's going to win um, the presidency or not. Uh, but he's talking about the things that I've thought were important in ways that nobody's done for like 15 or 20 years or more. And uh, so I thought, well, look, now's the time to do it. I'm going to do it. And the first thing that I did was I founded American Greatness. Uh, We launched in uh, early 16. Uh, And the kind of my mental model at the time was basically um, Reagan had National Review. And they kind of fleshed out the ideas that he was running on and that were important to the country at the time. And if you recall in 2015 and 2016, the whole sort of legacy conservative media establishment was what was vehemently anti-Trump um, as today, basically and I thought, well, you know, look, Trump is sort of, sort of speaks in like slogans and sound bites. It's like build the wall and this sort of thing where those things are all right, but you have to build up like an an argument and an infra, like a mental intellectual infrastructure under that. I thought he could, he could really use the help. Um, he could really use, uh, a, an institution like a magazine that is backing him up on these things that makes the argument that examines the, uh, you know, the different aspects of it. That was, uh, and that was really what I thought the mission well, of American greatness was. And in a lot of ways continues to be because, um, uh, because there's not enough people doing it, because it's important, because basically the future of the country is based, I think, on having a, a, a strong, vibrant, self sustaining middle class. And all of these things relate to that. Mm-hmm. Trade relates to that. China relates to that. Immigration relates to that. Uh, building up a manufacturing base, again, that all relates to that. And whether Trump is president, uh, whether somebody else is president, whether it's 2022, 2024, 2028, these are big, long-term issues that we need to deal with, uh, and that is, uh, you know, those are the sort of ideas on the worldview that American greatness exists to uh, to advocate on, on behalf of.
1: Well, with that uh, goal in mind, uh, you, you have achieved it through the one data point that I have, which is the first time I visited the White House in the last days of the Trump administration taking meetings uh for american moment related stuff um i was taking a meeting in the presidential personnel office and on someone's desk was an article from american greatness printed out it was one of pedro gonzalez's article i think john (laughs) mcadie earlier that day had literally had 20 copies printed out and put on everyone's desk i I think it was about something about immigration i think um but you know so so mission accomplished uh what's the future of the publication then uh, keep on keeping on yeah.
0: really. It, it's, as I said, this was, um, th- it's not something, it was not a problem that got created overnight. These, the things that we're talking about and they're not being fixed overnight, but mm-hmm. they are being fixed. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, so, you know, you, you, you bring up, uh, it's a little bit of an inside baseball thing, but a very important point about uh, the, the PPO, the presidential personnel office. Like this is, um, this is one of the most important offices in the executive branch. It is. Some of you watching will know this. um, Many won't. They'll be like, "What's PPO?" And it sounds like pretty obscure. And it kind of is, right? I mean, but this is uh, this is the these are the people who identify presidential appointees. Uh, They vet them, um, and they say, like, you know, this person would be good for this job. This person would be good for this job. Or this person, we should stay keep as far away from the administration as possible. Um, and it doesn't matter what it is, right? Anything that what are the, uh, any anything that the president can appoint, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you probably know this better than I do. How many presidential about appointees? four thousand? So we've got all these uh, uh, presidential appointees. Uh, they have a lot of power, not as much as you'd always like because they have the permanent bureaucracy, but they're really important. And this was like the this was the famous Reagan quote, right? Uh, a personnel policy, and it was a place that. Um, that, that Trump was really hamstrung for the first three years of this administration. Uh, but the final year, uh, he got really good people into PPO. Johnny McIntyre ran it, and then he had a couple other people, James Bacon and Naveen I mean, Tomas who were in there with him. There's a whole good crew of people in there. And they went through and vetted the people, um, and they identified the people that Trump voters, and I think Trump himself always thought, like, these are the people, or at least the sort of people, who should be staffing the Trump administration. And uh, it's people like that or, you know, that are really operating uh, in a way like way under the radar, at least from the public perception. Like that's like that's a really good concrete example of like where um, uh, a a publication like American Greatness can be helpful. Like there's there's one place where we can be helpful because like we speak to the faithful. Right. And we keep them informed and we keep them motivated and engaged um and that is kind of like um that's the artillery right mm-hmm. like we're doing that and like when I mean, we have like six million ish readers a month and so we speak to that those people a lot but then there are people who are actually like they're actually executing on things mm-hmm. on behalf of whether it be in that case a president or maybe it's a senator or a congressman or whatever they need the same thing too but they can be much more Uh, in in an immediate sense, they can be uh, much more uh, precise in what they want to accomplish. And so, you know, as part of our job is to be helpful to those to those folks, too. They've got to execute. But again, like I was saying, you know, like in the in the 70s and 80s, you had, you know, you had Reagan and you had other Republicans who they would look to guidance from certain publications because, you know, you. They have to execute. They can't be thinking these things out all the time. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of our job is to is you know is to be helpful in thinking some of these things out for the people who actually do execute uh, policy in government.
1: One of the ongoing conversations that that's been really interesting for the past few years has been people who are like authentically right wing who actually understood whether it was early or or later on the Trump thing. Um, you know uh, there 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 seems to be, some concern amongst them of co optation uh, and the dilution of terms like America First and MAGA, but also uh, the the misdirection of these energies towards other things. And so, you know, people always talk about Trumpism after Trump and, you know, what what is what does all this mean? Um, and one of the Frameworks that's trotted out a lot is oh you know it needs to be much more about policy instead of personality and all this stuff and I tend to think that that stuff is overwrought that actually like Trump's personality was a big a huge part maybe even the determinative part of what made him capable of overturning the system um, you know American greatness with its mission of putting meat on the bones to um, some of the the uh, energies that that Trump activated how do you how do you reconcile that conversation that debate. Um.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's these terms that float around, right? Trumpism, America First, MAGA, and they're all sort of like the Venn diagram has mm-hmm. them. Like they're sort of overlapping mm-hmm. each other. And, the, yeah, and nonetheless, they're um, slightly vague mm-hmm. in what they mean. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one way to um, make those things concrete is to identify particular um, policies or, you know, that sounds super nerdy. Like, or you, should you write, have this particular bill? You know, I wouldn't even go that far. I mean, there is a place for that for mm-hmm. sure. But it's kind of like immigration, you know. Do is it is it limited and legal? Um, Is it or is it uh, extremely permissive and illegal? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's sort of of directional.
1: Safe, legal, and rare. Safe, legal, (laughs) yeah, right, yeah,
0: yeah. That's uh, yeah, that's funny, yeah, because I've used that joke before with immigration. Yeah, Yeah, that's like that's a that would be uh, that would be that's a good uh, policy uh, for immigration. But that's that's the way I think about these terms. It's like, you know, how do you make these things concrete in a way that is actionable and that's that's very important you know there are it, it's interesting in that everybody not surprising but interesting that um everybody on the right or at least republicans broadly defined everybody's america first yeah now right everybody's maybe not MAGA, right because somehow MAGA is is too close to trump yeah for some people yeah. Um, but again, the term doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean anything, right? Or, or it's unclear what it means in any
1: particular context. It just becomes a new adjective to add to the long train of adjectives. It's like, you know, at some point in the 80s, every Republican started running as a conservative Republican. And now you have a constitutional conservative Republican, Tea Party constitutional conservative Republican, a Tea Party America first MAGA constitutional yeah, conservative yeah. Republican. It's just like people just like skin suit on whatever the latest term is. And it starts to just be... Instantly useless as a term.
0: It's instantly useless. Like when you if you want to think about like what are the um, you know, what are the good heuristics that you can use to see where somebody is like immigration maybe is the best one Mm -hmm. uh, or or one of the best ones for sure. But it's like, where is somebody on immigration? Like this tells you a lot about the way they think about politics and generally in general about the country um in general uh better i don't know if there's a better one you know maybe some of the foreign policy questions about mm. war around uh around foreign uh you know sort of endless war that type mm. of thing but i think it's immigration because even now you do have a wing of the party that says yeah absolutely we are for like only legal immigration We're against illegal immigration and it's like well like what's your like what's your limitation on legal immigration? You know, I don't know, like ten, 10 million a year or something. <laughs> yeah. You're like, okay, yeah. okay, I get where you're coming from. You're yeah. you're fine with, yeah, you're fine with displacing the American middle class. Yeah. Um, there's
1: there's literally a member of Congress that said my immigration policy is four words: legal good, illegal bad. That is a childish way of looking at immigration policy.
0: It doesn't say anything, right? And it's and I think that's intentional, right? Mm-hmm. When when somebody who's in office says that, that means I'm I, I want to be all things to all people. And I'm going to say something very vague. And if you want to believe it one way, you can believe it that way. And if you want to believe it the other way, uh, you can believe it the other way. You know, I, you know, no respect mm-hmm. to that,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? That's uh, that. That's not uh, helpful. But it, it is to your point about Trump the man and about the personality aspect of politics versus the policy as, aspect of politics. This is one of the things that really. I think is explains why Trump resonated with so many voters. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is because he didn't do things like that. Um, he wasn't always trying to, you know, thread every the eye of every single needle. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, there was a, um, I, I, guarantee, I know you saw this over the weekend though. I, I don't know, but I know um, <laughs> yeah, a friend, I, uh, a mutual friend of ours posted a uh, uh Picture on Twitter, four pictures. There's Tim Ryan uh, wow. shooting a gun, looking super awkward. Like <laughs> he never shot a gun before. He's like leaning way back, yeah, like yeah, he's yeah. afraid it's going to bite him. Yeah. And there's John Kerry hunting. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. The, like, the a great... tradition is old as time. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> just faking it. Like mm-hmm. hello, fellow kids. Hello, mm-hmm. fellow hunters. Yeah. Um, and that's like the the thing with Trump always was he just you know he said he just was who he was. Mm-hmm. You know, he was authentic. You know, you might say, oh, there's plenty of people who said, well, he was authentically obnoxious. Uh, okay, but he was who he was and is who he is. You know, and a, f- a friend of mine has said for a while, and I, I had actually has said it all through the Trump administration, but I did and I didn't actually pick up on it um, as a thing is like you have that phenomena where uh, politicians like Tim Ryan, he's out there shooting a gun. I mean, he it looks like he looks as natural doing that like as I would look like I don't know, knitting or something. <laughs> and like there was the there was the picture from 04 of Carrie going out hunting. It was like opening the I think it was in Pennsylvania. He's got brand new hunting gear on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like the folds are still in it. <laughs> Literally tags <laughs> are tags still, are still out. on it. I mean, it's <laughs> like, okay, come on. Whereas Trump, and this was actually, a, this is actually the interesting thing. Like they, they always get dressed up in in the costumes for wherever they are. Yeah. Right? The he candidates. never did that. He, he
1: always just wore the suit. Always
0: the suit. Yeah. If he goes to a donor meeting in Manhattan, you know what he's wearing? Navy suit, white shirt, red tie. If he's going to, uh, he's if he's going to, Uh, a cookout in Iowa guess what he's wearing navy suit white shirt red tie if he's going to like I don't know an event at something in Newport Beach California navy suit white shirt red tie just was always who he was and you know take it or leave it but there was something that uh, that was very refreshing to people about that because there's like this political mentality that says These people aren't that smart. Like, if I put on the hunting gear, they're going to think I'm a hunter. Yeah. Um, And Trump had more respect for voters Mm -hmm. uh, than the people who just try and dress up in the costume. Mm -hmm. And that was something that really resonated, I think, with with a lot of people. There was like this cognitive dissonance where you'd have, uh, where you'd have like people in you know IR or whatever, um, who would think like. OK, like I'm going to give this guy a shot. Well, they may not have loved him, but they're like, all right, at least I get who he is. Right. Um, whereas like the political class is like, but he didn't tick these particular boxes. He was mm-hmm. supposed to lie to you in these time-honored uh, <laughs> traditional ways and he didn't do it. And you're yeah. supposed to
1: dislike that. You're dumb. Yeah. You're supposed to be waiting for these lies, we tell you. Right. Well, and and there there is a real policy upshot to some of this stuff, right? Because you think, OK, the, the suit thing is interesting and I've never – I've never – framed it that way, because my corollary to this um, has always been, um, you know, on some of the more like policy areas, like, for instance, you take the pro-life issue, like Trump never pretended like he was always a pro-life champion or whatever, but he said, this is something my voters want, I'm going to champion this issue, and he took it to its logical conclusion, and he was a very pro-life president. Um, You know, there is a game that can be played in politics, and you see this especially on the right, where... Actually, the putting on the costume draws from a central bucket of like political energy, and politicians use that as an excuse to not actually do the substantive stuff. Correct. Right? It's like, well, we're one of you, so we don't have to actually fight because I'm just like you. Whereas Trump was like, yeah, I'm very different than most Republican voters, but- I'm going to do this stuff for them. And that yeah. distinction matters because it has implications for what you think politics is for. Right. Uh, one uh, subject of a frequent ire on American Greatness's website uh, has been David French. And, and he is like a perfect example of this, right? Like he <laughs> he fundamentally prioritizes, you know, the kind of like affinity signaling above and beyond policy, like to the point of being willing to give up the policy stuff. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's, that's a really interesting Example of, of what made Trump different is he didn't he didn't pretend to be anything that he, he wasn't. And, mm-hmm. and voters were like, yeah, OK, like, you know, and, um you know, at, at the very least, you know, someone that wealthy running for public office, they'd constantly be trying to hide it in any other era. Whereas Trump was like, yeah, I'm super rich. And don't you want to be super rich, too? <laughs> Like, I
0: don't know. This is the funny thing is like everybody pretends like they're supposed to be, you know, every that's an interesting thing about America is like everybody's middle class. Yeah. Like that's sort of the that's like the American conceit. Now, there's a way in which it's true. Right. Because most people who are wealthy are within one generation of being of legitimately being mm-hmm. middle class. Uh, so there there is that aspect of it, but also people who've been very successful or maybe are just gener you know, have come from a, from a family with generational wealth why not just own it Mm -hmm. right i mean if if you're successful yeah i'm successful but i want to serve the country Mm -hmm. okay don't just don't pretend that you're something Mm -hmm. uh that 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 you aren't or if you're from a family like i mean the trump family has been wealthy for uh for a couple generations and and this is what the thing about trump is like yeah like my family's wealthy like but you know there's like almost a sense of like noblesse oblige which you know okay yes this is something that comes along with wealth is responsibility and that's not something that turns people off it's something that actually people find refreshing mm-hmm. and attractive um it's again it, well I was going to say not to pick on John Kerry but no actually to pick on John <laughs> Kerry I, I mean he's John got Kerry, generational wealth too right he, yeah i mean look he you know he went to boarding school in Switzerland growing up he comes from a you know a decently wealthy family but you know he you know he married um he married the widow of the Heinz fortune who mm. you know his her his wife's uh husband was john hines who was a republican senator from pennsylvania who mm-hmm. was like ketchup Hines. Mm-hmm. right so john Kerry's out there not even spending his own money he's spending um his laws money or his, or no, his wife's his, yeah. dead husband's <laughs> republican dead husband's money and is like meanwhile dressing up like like hello fellow kids i'm also (laughs) one of the one of the middle classes Mm -hmm. you know it's like it's so it's just ridiculous it's like in in actuality we would be so much better off if people who um people who were legitimately from like an upper class just said like we actually like have a sense of Noblesse oblige, like we're, behave like an aristocracy, not like an oligarchy. Mm-hmm. The distinction being one is good, beneficial for society and aristocracy because it has its virtuous versus an oligarchy, which is what we have now, which is that it is self interested and destructive of the positive ends of the country.
1: Right. So in 2016, 15, the basket of issues that sort of defined what made Trump different was, was trade, immigration, foreign policy. These, these were the three that really mattered. Um, And, you know, one thing that I'm always trying to think about is we don't want to replace one dogmatic approach to what it means to be on the right, i.e. like fusionism, national review conservatism, with another one that's just like static and fixed in time. You know, it's been six years since that campaign, seven, um, depending on how you measure. Uh, Has that basket of issues been updated? Is there new stuff that matters more? Is there stuff that matters less than, than those three issues? How are you thinking about like, what defines the the tent of issues that, that the cutting edge of what the right needs to be championing would have.
0: It's basically the same issues. I would say there's maybe been a refinement, <laughs> pardon me, a little bit on the trade thing, which mm-hmm. I'll come back to in a second, but... Um, Like we haven't won those three issues Mm -hmm. Um, like there's still like immigration is out of control Mm -hmm. in this country. Like since Biden's been in office, I think the number is like five and a half million illegal aliens have have come across the border. Mm -hmm. By the way, bringing with them like sex trafficking, fentanyl, which is killing 100,000 Americans a year like that issue is at the forefront, like in terms of mindshare. Um, uh, uh, particularly of Republicans, but more so of, of like Independents, and even of some, uh, of some Democrats, not many, but some, uh, but it's not fixed. Like that's mm-hmm. the thing, right? I mean, Trump brought that issue to the forefront starting in 2015, but mm-hmm. here it is 2022, it's seven years later and you still have millions, uh, of illegal aliens coming across the border. The border is still out of control.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so that it remains a major, uh, major issue, um, You think about uh, you think about like uh, endless, winless foreign wars. Well, like, I mean, Trump winds down the wars and Biden's in office for like 20 minutes and he gets us involved in a major war in Europe. Like, I mean, it's outrageous. There are uh, I mean, as it stands Right now, Biden has uh, been lying to the American public about the war in the Ukraine. There are American troops on the ground, as they have been, probably from something like moment one in the Ukraine. And uh, and meanwhile, Biden continues to escalate, escalate, escalate at the, a cost, uh, not just to the Ukrainians who are dying um, in like just, you know, what I think are offensive amounts, um, but also to Americans. And that really is our main concern. Global As,
1: elites will fight this war till the last Ukrainian and the last American dollar.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, the last, right. That, right. The last Ukrainian life yeah. and the last American dollar. Yeah. No, That's a very good way to put it. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, I come back to this thing every, I don't know, I think about this like once a week, I'm thinking like, it really is amazing. You know, the critique that, that, that Trump offered of the American ruling class when it comes to foreign war It's more true than like than even people who believed it when he said it thought because like they just can't keep their they just can't keep the country out of a war. Like Mm -hmm. we spent 20 years in Iraq. That finally gets wound down. We spent 20 years in Afghanistan. That finally gets wound down, by the way, incompetently. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, Biden basically provides the Taliban with one of the best militaries on the planet. Uh, because, he, you know, famously or infamously leaves behind all this equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then right after that, like, OK, well, I don't know, getting itchy here because <laughs> we're not involved in some major war. Yeah. Maybe we could maybe we could do one yeah. in Europe. This yeah. time. Like, okay, Something going Bring on. Bring back the hits. <laughs> right. So the like, let's let's play the hits again. I mean, like, oh, these two countries that are very far away from our borders are at war. How can we get involved? Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's just like, it's like, the, it's just like pathological. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, mean, and meanwhile, um, you, you, you know, we're treated to, um, you oh. know, we're treated to this, like these conflicting accounts from that, that the sort of elite opinion will tell you with, and with no trace of like irony or, or, or self-reference where they tell you at, uh, out of one side of their mouth, and it'll be the exact same person, Putin, incompetent right? Can't do anything right. The Russian military just like in totally bad shape. They can't produce any bullets. They're running out of cruise missiles. Mm -hmm. Been hearing that since February. Uh, Not going to have any missiles left by Monday. They keep flying. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, right? And they're like, oh my gosh, they're going to lose. This is terrible. On the other hand, you realize we have to get involved because if we don't get involved, probably Putin's going to be, you know, rolling tanks down the (laughs) Champs-Élysées. I'm like, you don't. Know, do you expect me? Like, I have short-term memory. Yeah. Like, do you expect me not to know? You're telling me that he's at once incompetent and on the other side, like capable uh, a, of building an empire, but, like, larger which, than I, I don't know which is it. Yeah. And so, like, and somehow it's like, yeah, he's losing and has it's destined to lose. On the other hand, we've got to do it otherwise. Like, I don't know. It's going to be like the scene at the beginning of the movie Red Dawn, where mm-hmm. like there's paratroopers over Denver or whatever. Yeah. It's like you know, come on.
1: Yeah, yeah. What what has been your read on how quickly? the conservative movement which i had a friend i was talking to recently and and we we came to the line you know, the conservative movement is neither um is neither conservative nor a movement um what's your read of how attentive or capable of change it's been since trump came on the scene i think the foreign policy issues is an interesting one because you have seen some institutional movement in the last 6 months to a year um, that has indicated that there's some reevaluating going on, but the question is is it too little too late and and how do you how do you think about the concept of a conservative movement in general because it's not been very nice to American greatness historically <laughs>
0: um, it needs so I, I guess I think about it this way is that i I continue to think that the sort of the base of uh, of the conservative movement just meaning just people who generally identify with you know, a conser- well, you know a conservative or right-of-center view of the world, they are with us. The institutions are against us. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that means, if you want to be effective, is you have to build new institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, it is difficult, but not impossible to reform existing institutions. And so where possible, I think that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is often easier and cheaper just to build new institutions. I mean, that was sort of the genesis behind American Greatness. There have mm-hmm. been some other um, uh, there have been some other institutions, America Moment, among others, that have been doing the same thing, and that's necessary. But, you know, you think about um, how do you achieve these things? Like, you say, well, there's all these people who agree. True. But then how do you turn that agreement um, in, in that what is basically potential into reality? So you've got latent energy, um, and you need to do something to channel that energy the energy gets channeled through institutions just Mm -hmm. the nature of life Mm -hmm. right um and so that is really i think critical uh and you know a lot of that work has been done Mm -hmm. um, over the past five six seven years lots left to do like we're not halfway there
2: Mm -hmm. yet
0: um and so you you just think about this at a very practical level um If you are, let's take the farm policy thing. If you are a farm policy person, that's your job. You do think tank type work or whatever. Um, And you are in a neocon type organization that is, that basically gets their money from, you know, the military industrial complex or whatever. Tough for you to stay employed if you don't advocate for, you know, for all kinds of farm wars. Um, Whereas for a certain if you were if for a certain amount of money if they were able to hire you over at this other institution you could maybe speak your mind it's important you know you got to have the chairs and you got to have the people to occupy those chairs Mm -hmm. and that's how i think you are able to really sort of start to change the trajectory and Mm -hmm. so like in our in our own way Um, With American greatness like there were and this was this is literally true like in 2016 and 17 There were people who were doing journalism whether it be uh, like reporting type journalism or opinion type journalism Who were sitting in seats at other? um, Legacy conservative media outlets and they were literally banned from saying anything pro-Trump Once American greatness existed they had a different place To go Mm -hmm. and to get a paycheck because like they like they wanted to say x and they were being prohibited (laughs) by their editors from saying x (laughs) and but for a different outlet they would not have ever been able to say that and so you know i was said like that that was and continues to be one of the things that we do um, which is we give um we give a place for those people to be able to do what they do to get a paycheck for it and, and and to give voice to these ideas. But it doesn't only exist at American Greatness, which is a f- fundamentally a journalistic enter- enterprise. Uh, it exists in the think tank world. And it exists in, you know, if you want like, there's, a, as you know, there's University of Austin. There's, you know, an academic institution. There's a lot of different institutions where people, I think, would be better served if they were able to get out of the old institutions that are stifling them and be able to go with more aligned institutions where they're able to actually do and say what they think.
1: Some of this comes down to a realism about human nature, right? You can't expect superhuman willingness to charge the sniper's nest from everyone, right? Especially not by yourself, right, right? If people have to feed their family and it's like, okay, I believe this thing, but there's no way for me to earn a living if I believe this thing. And they're going <coughs> to suppress themselves. That's just the net. like an, at at some level other. It's not players- even a
0: criticism, right? I mean, they got a they've got responsibilities
1: at home. They got to pay their bills, right? And so, at some level, it becomes the responsibility of other actors in the ecosystem to arrange the table such that those people can do the right. Absolutely, thing. and that's right. that's why you have to create essentially patronage for for your people in whatever way that looks like. Um, what do you what, what do you make of the risks? That this fledgling movement faces in the coming years, like what, what, we talked about cooptation a little bit, but what, what what do you think the false paths or wrong paths to go down would be in the next one, three, five, ten years?
0: I think uh, I guess I, I I think about it in a couple different ways. Would uh, you talk about cooptation? I always I always think of it in it with different terms, same idea as entryism. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, you have people who consciously or unconsciously try and take over uh and redirect the institution so you've got to be you got to be concerned about institutional integrity and that means being really focused on your mission Mm -hmm. um understanding what that mission is uh and sticking relentlessly to that mission uh and it's just easy you know again talking about human nature it's just easy to become complacent um to, or, you know, to lose sight of what your actual mission is. I mean, these are all these enterprises, whether it be American Greatness, American Moment, any of these institutions, like we're, we all have a reason that we started them. And I think that it really pays dividends for all of us who are running these institutions to always keep an eye on them those original mm-hmm. reasons. Like, cause there's like a big picture reason why you did, it. and there's like tactical things that can change, and that's mm-hmm. fine. But always understand that this is like a mission-oriented enterprise. And then just make sure that the things that you're doing are militating in favor of what those original goals are.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's really, that I think is is really critical. Um, and just, and it's like that in any organization, right? And so like one of the things, Uh, that we do, we're going to do it next month um, is like, I like get my management together. Um, And uh, we're, you know, like COVID year, we were not able to do it. Sounds ridiculous in retrospect, (laughs) but we weren't for various reasons. But anyway, you know, we try and get together uh, at least once, once a year to have like kind of the big thing. Okay. What do we do? Right. What do we do wrong? How do we kind of, and you kind of just true everything up again. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's pretty important to do. Like if you were a, if you were a for-profit business, you would do that and say like, you know, do we have the best widgets? You know, how's our RD and widget making coming? Mm -hmm. Uh, do we sell more widgets or less? Are our widget margins going Mm -hmm. up or down? Like it's pretty, it's as a business, like you kind of know Mm -hmm. what you're doing. You're trying to, more, better products, sell more of it, get your margins higher. For us, uh, in, in a political space, it's a little bit different, but the same, mm-hmm. I think the same principle applies. Mm-hmm. And you always have to kind of come back to those, to those basics yeah. and make sure that you're, you're hitting on the, on the core things.
1: Well, and that drive has to be chosen to be, to be implemented because in the business world, if you aren't self-reflective in that way, your business dies. Yeah. The nonprofit world is very easy to just coast for a long time yeah. if uh, if you don't constantly reevaluate. Um, has getting involved more and more over the past few years for you changed your perspective on like what being an institutional actor actually is like? Has it tempered any of the you know, criticisms you may have had of existing institutional actors, has it made you think, oh, no, that you should actually hold these people to account even more? I'm just curious like what your read on like, the constraints of being an actor in this ecosystem um, has, has made you think about.
0: Um, I, get, I would say probably uh, some of each. So I would say the fundamental critique, like I actually believe I was too mild in. And I don't know if, if anybody thinks I was
1: mild in the first place. <laughs> um, but it's, it's not an adjective that's that's known to describe your, your <laughs> right. public yeah, commentary. No, look,
0: right. But no, I look at some of this and some of, the, some of the critique of the institutions, I think, was like, it's actually worse. Like you talk about how these institutions and the people in them became really, really self-referential. Really, Conservative really in like movement self, institutions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, really, really self-serving, like really – uh cordoned off from the rest of the country and quite honestly not caring about the rest of the country a lot of those things i think were uh were more true Mm -hmm. um like more sociopathic than i would have thought let's say four or five years ago um on the other hand there are there are also really good people and really uh good institutions there's one major institution i can think of um that comes in for a lot of heat. I, I, I think I won't say the name of it, but it's one like it's one every single person watching your podcast would know of. Um, it, it, and it's a it's a political enterprise. And I think about it like it's one that everybody likes to criticize. And this is a place where I actually have reformed my, um, my thoughts on it. It's one that um, how how do I want to say it? the critique is is that institution X should be doing. A, B, and C, mm-hmm. okay? And these are layups. Like, why aren't they doing it? Um, and what I realized in getting closer to it, and I, I'm i sorry for being a little bit vague, but is A, B, and C are all good things to be doing that somebody should be doing, mm-hmm. but that the institution in question actually isn't built to do those things. Right. Um, and, like, I understand why people who aren't that close to it would say they should because it would mm-hmm. make sense. Uh, but actually, they it's just not what they do, mm-hmm. and there's 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 there are constraints on it as to why they can't do it. Mm-hmm. And so, as I've seen that, what I've said is, okay, the critique is correct in that these three things need to be done. The critique is wrong in that this institution is the one that should be doing them. And what that means is simple: we got to create an institution to do those mm-hmm. things because they actually really are needful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's a place where you know I guess I have changed my mind, but it just come, br- brings back to the to the original point, which is we need more better and newer institutions. Like and sometimes like the you know conservatives like to complain, right? I mean, this is like uh, you know it's it's the pastime is like oh my gosh, things are so terrible, like mm-hmm. you know we're screwed. Yeah, um, and like that's really it, it, that, that's really a big part of what our battle is, is to say actually things are bad but we have agency they don't have to remain bad mm-hmm. uh right like there's a weird like american conservative eschatology that says like if only like if things are so bad and they're only going to get worse I think well you know the former may be true the latter is definitely not true um mm-hmm. That's only true if we don't act. So mm-hmm. let's act, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, like the permanent outsider status, I think is a bad idea. It's a, it, it's, it's a bad look for conservatives. It just means like, mm-hmm. well, if you want to self ghettoize, then get used to like taking a beating. Um, but I don't want to do that,
1: right? right? Well, it's the the two, there's is two false paths. So you know, boomerism and doomerism. So like doomerism, everything's gonna is bad, gonna get worse. There is no point don't, don't, don't be involved is essentially the upshot of it because like, what's the point then why waste the time and energy? And then boomerism is like, you know, you have a certain kind of person that's like, Oh, the moral work of the universe is long events for justice. Everything's going to be fine. Yankee doodle, you know, whatever. No, like actually like both of those are a way to eschew the role that like agency and individual effort Correct. will take uh, to actually get the things you want done. Um, on, on both sides of the ledger of kind of how you've thought about institutions, you know, on, on the former, um, about how institutions are more corrupt and self-referential than you realize. Like I think the biggest thing for me building this out is realizing that your like median conservative donor is more conservative than the institutions they give money to. And not by a little yeah, either, by the way, by a lot. Which that that would have been that I would have thought the opposite. I would have thought the opposite was the case. And like, oh, that's why these institutions are pressured and like you know, and the critique you'd make is, "You guys are sellouts." You know, you you're just doing. This. No, there's plenty of money to do hard right, cool stuff out there. Um, the question is like, <coughs> and, and and so there's much more criticism to be made of these institutions because of that. And then on your um on your reason to give some institutions some slack, yeah, I I, I think that that's that's also been an interesting experience, is because no one institution doing anything well can do everything. And they, they can probably do like one or two things really well, right? And like, this is something that we always deal with, right? Like, you know, we having a great conversation with someone and they're like, oh, you should be doing this. And it's like, golly gee, wouldn't that be fun to do that? But like, you have to stay focused on your mission because otherwise you'll 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 creep away and you won't keep what's special or useful about any particular institution in check. And, um, you know, when it comes to legacy institutions, how I like to measure it is, you know, they have to, they can only be measured against themselves. Like what mm-hmm. is brave and... Uh, you know, serious stand to take in the context of the institutional pressures that they face, like a bravery and a willingness to take a stand has to necessarily be measured relatively. You know, Mm -hmm. there's, there's probably even a, a, a a metric by which I would praise some of the worst institutions on the right. If they took a stand that, you know, you know, to be particularly out there or brave for their institutional position, they find themselves in Um, all that, all that is a, a point well taken. Um, you know the the side of this that that I'm curious about is what do you think um, a movement maturing will look like? You know we, we, the the American greatness, American moment, all these other institutions that have cropped up. You know we we've been on the outside looking in, but over time these institutions are going to be in a leadership role where they they end up potentially becoming their own establishment. What does that look like? What does that roadmap so um... look
0: like? Well, I'll tell you what I'll tell you what winning looks like. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm not sure if that's your exact question, but I've got two answers to what winning would look like. Um, One's a very big picture and one is uh, is a little bit uh, is a little more tactical. Mm -hmm. Um, The big I think the big picture goal is I I think it's always useful to concretize these things uh, because, well, it just helps you. Know what you're shooting at, right? Uh, is to to make it very concrete. <clears throat> and I think that uh, you know the the example here is or not the, the example here for the right is FDR. Uh, so what we you know so what are your political goals? Well, you have political goals in terms of like policy, but you have also political t- goals that are just like purely political. Mm-hmm. Um, like what we want is to win presidential elections with fifty five percent of the popular vote election in and election out because we've realigned the country in a way that that is just where the country is. Um, and we don't want to win presidential elections with like 48.2% of the vote and a jigsaw puzzle electoral college map. Um, we'd rather have that than lose, you know, I'll stipulate that. Yeah. But what we're trying to do uh, is we are trying to go from 48 to 55, mm-hmm. or from 49 to 55. and. You know in a way that sounds like a huge lift um because well basically the last person who did it in this country was fdr but that you know that coalition lasted for you know in a really solid way like maybe a generation or generation and a half and in a pretty significant way for another generation or so after that mm-hmm. so it was a major major win which fundamentally transformed the country for the worst but nonetheless transformed the country. So you say, well, gosh, a realignment like that, like that's massive. Yes, I agree. But on the other hand, if you think that like, uh, you know, Republicans would typically win in a presidential election, like maybe 48, 49, 50% of the vote, maybe a little more, um, you know, that's when we're winning. Well, you got to move 5% of the people to get where we want. Like, Like that seems Doable when you
1: frame it that way. Like mm-hmm. you think, like okay. Especially least. in a country where like only about fifty percent of people vote. Like you know, like you yeah, have yeah, there's so much it, dry you know, powder that you can activate right now.
0: But now you know what you're shooting at. And mm-hmm. you're like, okay, like how do we do that? Like when you think about it, like I need to move five percent of votes in a permanent way. At least it's something you can kind of you can model. Like now it almost becomes more of like an engineering mm-hmm. problem. Um, and that also, by the way, speaks to, like, what are the institutions that need to be built? What do those institutions need to be doing? Well, when you have a, a concrete goal like that, you can start to direct your resources and your energy at something like mm-hmm. that that's very tangible. That's one thing. So, well, okay, so that's my big picture answer. Another, uh, the, my other answer to, um, uh, to, to what does winning look like, we'll know we're winning when the opportunists join us. Right. Yeah. That's uh, and that like that's another metric for yeah. how we know we're en-
1: winning. En- entryism is part of the ecosystem.
0: Yeah. Entry. Yeah. Well, so it, strictly speaking, like entryism would be people would try and co-opt the institution. Mm-hmm. But now they know that the rewards are all stacked up on mm-hmm. this side. Mm-hmm. So they actually don't believe it. They don't care. They are pure opportunists, but they are going to they're going to stick to the pieties mm-hmm. because that's where because you know hashtag winning Mm -hmm. so when the opportunists and you on a one-on-one basis you always know who the opportunists are when they're joining up and they are like singing the company song louder than anybody else Mm -hmm. that's another way you know you're winning
1: right interesting um those are those are certainly good metrics i think you know the the path to like it's not quite super majoritarian but but you know majoritarian plus politics you know one of the the challenges with something like that, and the position that we might find ourselves in, is that the animating energies of a lot of the stuff we want to do politically are the right wing of the right wing. And so the path to capturing more of the pie than is absolutely necessary, some would argue, requires diluting your message. How do you think about purity spirals, or or do you think that that... Um, that is not even a requirement to to what needs to be done i think um these i think that when I think when we make
0: our politics too theoretical and too ideological that's what happens mm-hmm. then people want to argue about things that are abstractions. when you think about what are the concrete things that we want to achieve in politics, um, most people agree with those things mm-hmm. like when you, you know the, it, it, it's kind of like the um I've talked about this for uh, for a few years now. Um, our mutual friend, Blake Masters, has said it in his, uh, he was saying it in his campaign. He said, you know, I think, the Ameri- I think that in America you should be able to raise a family on a single middle class wage. Right? He's not the first person to say it. Other mm-hmm. people said it. But, like, that's, should, that's not a controversial statement. Like if you talk to people in those terms, just ordinary people say, like, wouldn't it be great if? Right? Um, not that you have to but that it is possible to do that. So, like, um, uh, you know, Orrin Cass at American Compass came up with, uh, I think it was in 2018 or 2019, he came up with this sort of uh, basket of things that were measurable, economic goods, that define what a middle-class life consists of Mm -hmm. in America. Like, you own a house, you own a car, uh, you can send a kid to college, you can pay for your health care, like all these things. It's just like what people normally take for granted as middle class. Um, And the statistic, you know, when you define the basket of goods and services that way, you know, what he says is that the last time it was possible to do that on a median wage in this country with a single one, raise a family of four, uh, was like the late 80s, like 88, 89.
1: living Uh, memory.
0: In living memory, yeah. Um, And it had been possible for generations before that. It has not been possible on a median wage to do that. Now, if you say this to people uh the, some people will just say and i've had this experience myself well like that's ridiculous like you could never do that like and then you tell them well actually like as late as the late 80s people were doing it it wasn't a pipe dream well uh, and then the next question is
1: like, you revanchist how dare yeah, you <laughs> yeah, okay,
0: right, right. Uh, you want to take us like, back to the stone age right you think you think like that there's like a couple of different versions what like, you think women shouldn't work like didn't say that not my business Want to work? Go for it. Don't want to work? I'm okay. Fine. I'm just saying. Median wage should be at a in America should be at a level where a family of four could support itself in a middle class style on just that wage. Anyway, to your original point, when you start to make your goals concrete instead of just uh, dis- describing them in terms of theory, you broaden your audience mm-hmm. substantially. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, that's a place where. Um, people on the right could do a lot better because otherwise it does become it just becomes so abstract uh, uh, like who loves freedom more like mm-hmm. no i do no 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 i do like freedom is the best no 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 freedom not for is. Liberty. Absolutely <laughs> right. yeah, well, i'm, not, I'm yeah. for the front for the popular front for liberty oh really yeah. well i'm with the popular front for freedom yeah <laughs> you know, and then you get into these like ridiculous conflicts but when you make it very concrete then there's a place where not only, uh, I think, do you avoid some of these uh, purity spirals you're talking about, but also the number of people who find what you're talking about to be attractive, to be charismatic, to be something they would want to support. It just becomes much, much bigger. Mm-hmm.
1: So the legacy right in the United States was was very gatekept for a long time. Um, and honestly, the thing that made it harder for them to gatekeep wasn't actually the institutional lay of the land. It was like the advent of the internet. It was yeah. the digital. Um, you know, suddenly, yeah, they were still gatekeeping, but like in a wide open field and you could just like walk around right. and, and, and go find your audience. And American greatness has benefited greatly from being able to access new audiences online and such. And um, you know, especially in the era of Trump, there was like a Cambrian explosion of like different like niche micro movements on the internet um you know everything from like vitalist bodybuilders to like you know uh pe- people who are we going to
0: post physique
1: uh, you you are more than welcome to you are you are a much better bodybuilder than i am i've had a year of much travel um and so you know how how do you, how do you think about the role that like the perpetual critics uh, of you know joyful, uh, uh, sometimes strange, and 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 very right wing people on the internet. Uh, what role do you think they play in a healthy right wing ecosystem? I tend to really enjoy their presence. I think they provide a valuable corrective on people who are too self serious. But I'm curious how you reconcile them to so, the pie.
0: Well, I guess one of the things I would say is, um, you know, we've been treated to 25 years. Of humorless scolds telling us to be happy warriors, mm-hmm. be ha- be a happy <laughs> warrior, Rob. I'm yeah, telling you, yeah. that's the way you win. Now, yeah. Did you hear me? Like, if you're not a happy warrior, <laughs> yeah. by God, like yeah. you're
1: gonna have to go sit in the corner. Yeah. You're gonna get wrapped on the knuckles if you're like, smiling. Yeah, okay, yes, yeah, so I'm smiling.
0: Fine. <laughs> I'm a happy warrior. I yeah. swear. Yeah. Yeah. And so the but the thing about some of these like sort of um, smaller um, like uh, often anonymous people online. Is that they're actually being happy warriors. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of humor. There's just a lot of like, you know, vitality and joy. And the people who tell you to be a happy warrior are often the first people to criticize people joking around on the Mm -hmm. internet. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, okay, there you have it. You Mm -hmm. want to know like what's one of the big problems with uh, the conservative movement in general? It's that. Like, you know, like be a happy warrior. Oh, they're making jokes. Yeah, but no jokes. Okay. There's absolutely we can't have that. Yeah. Uh, and so like that's one of the benefits, I think, of uh of some of these uh sort of subcultures, like mm-hmm. or sub-subcultures, even, mm-hmm. is that they actually have fun with the stuff and they actually are, you know, bring a sense of like humor and levity. Uh, but also will surface issues um that are maybe not they're not overtly political mm-hmm. though they have a political implication mm-hmm. um to them or they will surface issues that are quite popular um but have been sort of uh pushed to the side by you know sort of traditional conservative institutions and like my one of my great examples uh of this is uh, is um the way a lot of the Anonymous or now, I guess, sometimes less anonymous, right, since they've uh, been uh, profiled on Tucker Carlson's uh, Fox, what is it, Fox Nation or whatever on that show, you know, is that there is, like, uh, there is, like, a, there is a very pro nature uh, part of the right. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a lot bigger than I thought. Like, I thought it was pretty big. Okay, so I'll stipulate that. But it's, like, almost everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, on the right. And, you know, my, one of my data points for this is in 2019, so three years ago now, um, I wrote something for American Greatness because it, you know, this is pre-COVID. So, uh, you know, I was sort of thinking about things where, um, where there actually is like a conservative core that it's not being addressed. And that is like, you know, so-called environmentalism. Like, I was thinking about like environmentalism is like, the left-wing version of conservationism, which is the right, right-wing right version, uh, or just being, like, pro-nature or whatever. And uh, so, I, so I thought, oh well, gosh, you know, we're really missing the boat on, like, you know, in like, the environment and on climate change. Like, it's like, and it's worse in Europe, by the way, where it's, like, a religion and people are indoctrinated in this stuff, you know, exponentially more
1: than here. They but have the- prophets like Redditenberg and everything. Yeah,
0: by the way, did you see this meme on... The Internet the other day, Greta and uh, uh, Kyle were uh, Rittenhouse were born on the same day, yes,
1: yeah,
0: that's wild, <laughs> yeah, there um, are patterns, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah, there's patterns in the stars, but anyway, I thought, well, we really ought to do first of all, it would be good for the country if we had like a pro nature uh, uh, uh on the right, it's just like it would be we'd all be better off because we'd have a higher quality of life, mm-hmm. um but also just in in terms of practical politics like why have we ceded this entire issue to the left like we just it we just don't do it like it's like they're saying x and we just say no mm-hmm. like and that's again that's that's the one of the many critiques of the right is that like we professionally just say no mm-hmm. um which i sort of in part lay at the feet of uh, Bill Buckley, who, you know, famously or infamously found a magazine saying, you know, we're standing athwart thwart history yelling stop. Mm-hmm. And like, that's not a political program. Mm-hmm. Like, um, among other things, like how smart is it to stand on a train track when the train is coming? <laughs> <laughs> like that, okay.
1: Um, it's called a thwart. He's standing a, a thwart. thwart. <laughs> yeah. Standing a thwart getting splattered across the tracks. Right. Don't do that. <laughs> Kids at home, don't yeah. do that.
0: Uh, but anyway, so standing with
1: 20- Wart History, yelling stop is not only bad political advice, it's bad parenting advice. <laughs> totally bad, yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: so anyway, in 2019, I write this article. Um, uh, we published on American Greatness about like some basically positive, sort of like pro nature, um, like things that conservatives could get behind. And it is one of the most popular things I've ever written anyplace. Uh, I went on Tucker. We talked about it. You know, Tucker is very, you know, he's very interested in this type yeah. of thing.
1: He got Pebble Mine to not be built. Um, yeah, no, I yeah. know. I know. So I so
0: I wind up getting over the course of about two weeks, I wind up getting, no joke, probably 2,000 emails from people. We get thousands of comments on the site. It is three years ago now. If you look at our statistics on the website, that's that piece is still getting, you know, a couple hundred uh, views per week. Okay so it's like it's had this really long tail um, and i was the, one of the many well not what well, not many but one of the recurring themes in the emails that it was getting was conservation is a conservative value conserve conservation they're like get it guys yeah. they're like why is anybody talking about this we need to do this yeah now we got Detoured by COVID and all the things that went along with that, though there is like uh, a sorry, there is like a a little bit of an overlap in the Venn diagram there about like just believing in the in the vitality of nature um, and wanting to steward that Mm -hmm. um, versus like the left wing version, which is. your body's immune system actually is insufficient and broken. Therefore, you must stay in the house mm-hmm. and you have to get a mandatory government-delivered shot once a month. Mm-hmm. Sorry, did we say once a month? It's once a fortnight. <laughs> actually, you're just going to get the patch. Yeah, and, you, know, it's just be, you can't leave your house. Yeah. You, all you have to do is just watch uh, OnlyFans, Netflix, order your food online, yeah. and just keep on working. Jerry weed gummy bears. You yeah, know. right, exactly. Uh, you know, eat the bugs. Yeah. Um, so anyway, you know, I know and, and these are things that are very much, uh, are, this is an example of things that are very much trumpeted by some of these subcultures you're referencing online, which I think um, actually has a pretty big impact. Um, because first of all, the folks, like a lot of the anonymous folks online are are quite intelligent, right? They know their subject. And they have, when they bring up these things, like you know, there is, uh, again, because they're anonymous, They have to stand or fail on their own merits. It's Mm -hmm. not like, oh, the Atlantic is writing about this. Now we know, uh aha, elite opinion agrees with this. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we have to do whatever that is. Um, It's meritocratic in that sense. Like they have to actually build their own audience. No, that's right. That's right. Contra Jordan Peterson, who's mad at anonymous accounts for some reason. <laughs> but take it from a, take it uh, or leave it to a Canadian to be against uh, Publius, the authors.
1: Oh, the really, yeah, there you go. Federalist Papers. <laughs> yeah, well, and you know, so it's the same reason why I'm like the least surprised person in the world, that Australia was the country that decided to do like concentration camps for the 21st century for COVID. It's like, oh, once a prisoner colony, always prisoner colony. <laughs> um, so true. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's a great example, right? And... Um, you know, there's all sorts of endemic reasons why, like, the institutional movement wouldn't be capable of surfacing issues like that. One, because they're like weird and like people don't really resonate with them. Two, because you know, for the legacy right, there were all these like economic interests that were tied into it. Like, if your all your money is coming from like big polluters and stuff, you're not gonna you're not gonna talk about these issues. Um, and then th- there's the side of it which is like genuinely. Um, you know, novel insights about the world. I mean, again, sometimes the stuff is like overwrought, but like the seed oils and the testosterone and like all these like exogenous things affecting our health. Those are those are new issues, and like the leading edge of them is going to be these guys. And one day, like right. you know, Nicholas Kristof writing about it in the New York Times only happens years after. Both left and right, these like weird subcultures that don't necessarily get everything right, but but will be the only ones to get something right early. That's where it comes from. And one of the things that's so irritating about a lot of like the institutional right is like, like you said, with the happy warrior thing, they are totally uncomfortable with having people around who are like really right about 70% of things and are right about 10% of things that no one else is right about Yeah. because, oh, golly, gee, wouldn't someone make fun of me for the 30% of things they might be kind of silly or strange about? And that's just arbitrary numbers. It's probably higher than 70%, honestly. Um, But- but again, it's it's this like epistemic discomfort with anything novel or new that permeates so much of the right, and it's by far their biggest limiting force because it prevent, it makes them only reactive to the changing world around us. Like you can only stand athwart history, yelling stop. You can't direct history because directing history would involve taking a risk.
0: Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, you talk about the influence these these things can have. I'll give you. Pretty good example that you mentioned seed oils. So, um, I was in Columbus, not that long ago, Ohio. Ohio. Actually, it was in the spring. And um, I went to, uh, just to grab some food at a restaurant uh, near OSU, near, near the Ohio State yeah. University. <laughs> and I sit down at, uh, I sit down at the bar, I just, I'm by myself, I just grab the menu. They have a little inset on the right side of the menu that explains that they don't use seed oils in any of their cooking and with a, with a sentence or two about why and how they will only use like coconut oil or whatever. I thought that's interesting <laughs> uh, because for people watching, like don't eat seed oils yeah. is, is something. It, this is one of those issues that uh, has been surfaced by a right of center subset or subculture online. And there's, uh, you know, Google it or whatever. But, you know, there's a lot of reasons why, you know, seed oils are very inflammatory um, they're just basically bad for your health. If you like, you can overlay a chart of like ob- the obesity epidemic and the increased use of seed oil and processed food in, in the United States. It's the same the fast, chart. <laughs> it's basically like this, you know. Um, but then I thought, well, that's kind of, that's pretty interesting. Like, first of all, Columbus is not exactly a right-wing town. Like, mm-hmm. it's like every other college town. It's like Madison, Wisconsin, very left-wing. I thought, well, that's sort of interesting. But, you know, like, there's the thing where, like, the like the uh the hipster cooks are always like into this type of thing and then um my wife was in dallas actually or just over this weekend she sends me a screenshot or not screenshot but a picture of a menu from a place in highland park mm-hmm. same almost like the same inset. we yes. do not use in we do not use seed oils and blah 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 and here's why i was like that's interesting Um, Now, Texas, you almost expect you're like, well, of course, the the chefs in Texas are right wing and are reading like right right wing anonymous internet posters. Um, But the Columbus thing was different. I always think like these are the issues where they're actually like they don't have an overt political valence, Mm -hmm. right? If like if seed oils are bad for you and they are, well, nobody wants to be nobody wants inflammatory disease Mm -hmm. like that's like an issue where there's like it's like horseshoe theory, right? Mm -hmm. This is where like the you know, the the. The right, the like, like, the right wing, like bodybuilding autists meet yeah. like the left wing hippies or whatever. Yeah. Um, and the point being is that when you, I, I think about you know like going back to my concrete goal, like how do you get to fifty five percent? Well, part of that isn't just talking about like I don't know, tax policy or something. Part of it is about these things that are like very, very personal, like health mm-hmm. and fitness and things like that. People, mm-hmm. people don't want to be sick. Mm-hmm. Um, but if when people realize that like the inputs into your body affect the outputs of your health and that actually like industrial agriculture uh, is has not been an unmitigated
1: uh, blessing that there actually are bad parts. About Tyson's it. food is a blessing of liberty. Don't you understand?
0: (laughs) (laughs) We have to talk, Sarah. I'm not sure that that's strictly true. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so if you're, I guess my point is, is that like if the if this is reaching to like the hipster cooks and is impacting what their menus in their restaurants, yeah,
1: that's another metric of winning. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I have one final question for you, and this is this is one that I think is one of those questions that is to be determined uh, for what the future of the right looks like. And that's the role that religion will play on the right of center. Um, you know, there, there, there's people get like is's and ought's confused here very frequently, right? Like there, there's a certain set of people that we would agree with on all sorts of policy areas that think that the future of the American right must be centrally religious Christian in its its outlook. And there's others that think that a more secular um, right is is on its uh, uh, is is about to arrive. What do you think of that, and and, and do you think that religion is going to play the litmus test role that it did on the right in the seventies, eighties, nineties, maybe even early two thousands um, in the future?
0: I, I guess I'd answer. I'd start by answering it this way: um, there has never, ever in the history of humanity been. A successful secular civilization. There's not one. Like rack your brain. You'll be thinking about this in a few months. You're like what about? Nope. <laughs> um, it just doesn't exist. Yeah. Like every every dominant civilization and non-dominant civilizations predominantly have had like a uh, a super dominant religion. Um, it's true with Rome. It's true with Egypt. True with the Greeks. Whatever. Uh, That doesn't mean that uh, there was no room for any other religion in that civilization. Uh, But it does mean that there was a sort of super dominant religion that defined your basic culture and your basic sort of uh, sense of uh, ethics, of justice, of those sorts of things. And, you know, basically in the United States, uh, religion will play that role. Um, the question is, what religion? And the you know the United States in its DNA is effectively uh, is basically the the sort of civil religion is the valence is all like low church Protestantism, right? It, that is who founded the country. It like even like even American Catholicism has like a Protestant valence to it compared to Catholicism in other parts of the world. Um, And that's just because it's that's just American culture, like Mm -hmm. even secular people Mm -hmm. like have a sort of Protestant, like low church sensibility about the way they think about culture and things like you see this even on, you know, famously on the left, you know, people like Moldbug and others have sort of offered their critique like, you know, the woke left actually is just like Puritanism, like 2.0 or 3.0 or whatever. And I'm sympathetic to that. I'm not sure it's strictly true, but there's enough truth to it that it's, you know, it's a it's a decent framework for thinking about it. The, so the point is, is for you thinking about the future um, uh, of American culture and politics is what role will religion play? But first of all, the threshold question is, will it play a role or not? Yes. I think that's an easy one. The question is what and how? And, <clears throat> you, you know, you asked the question about like the 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, it won't be that role. Um, that was a, the role that, and that was really a a combination of things. That was evangelicals, um, coming into politics, uh, particularly Republican politics for the first time ever. And it was a sort of like upper Midwest Catholics getting motivated by, uh, Reagan and around, uh, and in a lot of ways around the life issue. And, and those, like those two things, I think are still basically are, are trends that we still see, or things that we see in in right of center politics, and those things basically still remain true. But like the the bigger question you're asking, I think, is more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, let me, let me one sidelight on that, mm-hmm. which, uh, and I'll come back to the bigger point. But um, a project that I've been working on for the past couple of years is a pretty big voter registration project um, in several states. And um, one of the things we learned in doing the data work uh, that was the predicate to actually doing the registration is you have to see, like, who's registered, who isn't, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. And one of the things that we learned is that the the most unregistered right-of-center population in this country is... Um, is people who attend worship services two or more times a month. Really? It blew me away, okay? You think about people who are they're eligible to vote, they're not registered, and there's some indicator, you know, multiple indicators that say, like, they're on our side, they're conservatives. <coughs> and it's basically people who are faithfully religious, um, you know, an observant of whatever their religion is. It's basically true across um, all Religions, with the exception of um, Mormons and Jews, who are that like their most observant members uh, are registered at or higher, actually, than normal like uh, you know median levels. But you know, for uh, for uh, observant Catholics, observant observant Protestants, uh, observant Muslims, it is true that they are least less registered than the median. And I thought, God, that's so weird, right? Um, you would think. And my thought was going back to the 70s, 80s, 90s. I'm like,
1: did some, someone do this like, already? It, it, no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm like,
0: I thought we identified and fixed that problem like 30 years ago. And uh, so we dug into that data a little bit more. And what we found was actually super interesting, which is, yes, we did fix that problem then. Like, so basically, what happened, you know, this is sort of the redux version of it, but basically, what happened is went out, um, you know, people like, I don't know, like Ralph Reed, the Christian Coalition, other groups, you know, the predated Ralph, uh, basically went out and got all these young, then young, um, like evangelical boomers and got them registered to vote and engaged in politics. And those are actually our base today, okay? But their kids. And they're now their grandkids. Nope, nobody touched them. Interesting. Yeah, super interesting. So, anyway, that's just wasn't a, I, I some digress. of the
1: idea that the parents would have done that.
0: Yeah, and obviously they did to to some extent, right? Because you know it's not like they're not registered at all. Mm-hmm. They're they're like le- less registered by about ten percent right. than the mm-hmm. median. And so w- what happened is I, I think my sort of having looked at this a little bit, what my and this goes to the institutional question. Is that what happened? Is some of these institutions, which were really effective in that era, they became less effective over time. Typically, as their founders, the people who really created them and drove them forward, typically, as those people got older, those institutions became less effective. Mm-hmm.
1: And so it also may have just been like a product market fit that was designed for that population, and that almost necessarily you would need new institutions, new charismatic leaders to. Fit yeah, to that, next yeah that, that,
0: that may that may be right. I mean, those institutions um, that were that were built back then, they would have had to have had a really successful like leadership transition, mm-hmm. like maybe 15, 20 years ago mm-hmm. or something. And, you know, they're still working and whatever, but they just missed the generational shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, that's a, that's just a place where on our side, like there's actually a lot of those people out there. Mm-hmm. And those are people who are naturally, you know, what should be involved in politics. On our side, mm-hmm. anyway. I but you know I, I digress, not to get too far in, into the weeds. The the on your point about like what's the role of religion in politics and culture in this country? I mean, it, there's a, a I think a pretty reasonable framing, um, and I know that there are I, there are good critiques of this, but a simple framing is like, you know the the left has like a political eschatology which basically is all encompassing it like explains all of life Mm -hmm. it answers all of the questions um that religion typically would answer and um and the right has a different view the the right sees politics as a subsidiary uh to religion um and those are you know this is where a lot of our conflicts uh come from Mm So you know, basically, do you want uh, do you, you know do you want leftism uh, to be the secular religion of the state and of the culture? A la, say, let's say like the Soviet Union or something, uh, or do you want um, some other religious sensibility? <clears throat> now, does that mean it is sectarian Christian? Does it mean it is just sort of generically like we have a Christian sensibility? in this country um but obviously like we have like religious pluralism that's not going to change any um i i I don't know uh, how that plays out i do think that um to the extent that we on the right get more comfortable embracing um religion as an essential part of life and not trying to pretend that people are can break their lives Mm -hmm. and who they are into two parts like there's the Oh, I'm this religious person, but I'm also this other's uh, like business person, political person. These two things just don't uh, they 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 never sort of cross paths. I think that's just a conflict in in the way people live their lives. And you can't do it. We need to be more comfortable um, in talking about uh, religious things uh, in a way that is just sort of like normal Mm -hmm. and matter of fact, as opposed to. yeah, look, i put it this way. I grew up in the Protestant world. I'm very familiar with this. There is, a, there is like an overbearing, creepy way to do it. And we should not be doing that. There is another part of it just that when people say, like, why do you think X about politics? You say, well, uh, like, I'm a Christian and I think X, Y, and Z. And that's sufficient. Like, mm-hmm. you, I, I feel like we've jumped through too many hoops trying to explain a particular political stance where the origin actually is religious. You say, well, but I don't want to make that argument. I don't want to tell people that. So I'm going to try and come up with some other argument. Mm-hmm. And th- that other argument is just never as good, right? It's just not as convincing as if you just told people what you really think. That mm-hmm. they don't have to believe it. They don't have to accept it. But you're more authentic about it and I think more convincing when mm-hmm. you talk about it
1: in the terms that actually motivate you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: One of the unfortunate things about how the chronology of the last 30 years has played out is that the story of institutional corruption on the right got tied up with some of these questions, right? So like many like evangelical leaders that got tied into conservative politics, they were along for the ride for the policy level corruption that happened on the right. And so like certain very right wing, more secular thinkers, commentators, Twitter accounts, they say, well, we let the religious people be in charge for a while and look what it got us. It got us, you know, being a good Christian means open borders. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, part of the problem is like the same institutional corruption that happened everywhere. Um, And there wasn't a such thing as a a secular institutional establishment back then that you could point the same corruption to. That's developing now and and is reaching its maturity now what's the argument you make to the people who are like mad at where the religious right brought us like that. It failed to conserve these certain things in American society. The, uh,
0: there's, you know, there's all this talk about, um, the the left wants to use this as one of their talking points about this so called Christian nationalism. They
1: got a new word. <laughs> they're so proud
0: of that, their the, new uh, word that know, they I got.
1: Is, like I was <laughs> just wondering, like, did they? Where's the factory for all the new words? Because they're quite. It, it, it was literally like a sociology department. Like I I, I looked this up recently. Oh, you like, did. I yeah, because uh, yeah. it's like it's just so annoying. It's like now a term that everyone has to like talk about, and it's like, oh, Doug one Carrie Lake, da, 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 da. Marjorie Taylor Green's a Christian nationalist. Like it's so irritating because it's clearly like, oh, we found a it's new like, like scary Yeah, they've right.
0: got the just generate these yeah. terms there's like, like a
1: registered trademark by it and i don't want to use that they like registered trademark terms well no it's like it is impressive how
0: quickly yeah. they can turn out these terms um but they but there's like there's so little they're like almost
1: content free mm-hmm. um everyone i don't like is a christian nationalist yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, that's basically their argument
0: the the um to, on your question about like well you know the the religious folks did x y and z or the, these institutions Here's the thing is for the people who are worried about, like, in quotes, Christian nationalism, um, or even people on our side who think like, "Eh, like, I don't know, like we had this bad actor, that bad actor, or just this incompetent actor or whatever. Look, here's the thing. Um, How do I want to say this? The church, the Christian church, has not been very good at protecting its most core doctrines, it is in no shape to be trying to do anything in politics as an institution or even as, you know, sectarian, you know, denominational institutions. Uh, Because it's not that good at doing the one thing it has a divine mandate to do, which is to protect the gospel and to, you know, preach it faithfully and uh, to administer the sacraments and this sort of thing. the institutional church in this country, again, across the spectrum, is um, like quite liberal, um, theologically liberal, and that's a problem uh, because it's not faithful to its mission. And uh, so, to that extent, if somebody says, "Well, these institutions should not be, you yeah. know, dictating policy." they can't even dictate policy internally. Like we're in no danger of like, you know, whatever the, the Methodists taking over. Right. I mean, it, I mean, and to the extent by the way that these institutional uh, uh, church organizations are in quotes going to take over, they've actually already done it. Like Hillary Clinton is famously like a, an observant Methodist or whatever. <laughs> right. But, but, you know, the social gospel replaced the gospel of Christ a long time Ago in these, uh, in many of these institutions, or at least it was effective at diluting it. Um, and so, like, what I think about is really more at the f- first of all, the, there needs to be reform in the church itself so that it can do what it's actually its main function uh, and to do that faithfully. But second of all, um, when I think about what the role of uh, what the role of religion is going to play. And I tend to think that at least in the sh- kind of short, medium term, that's going to be bottom up, not top down. And that's pro- primarily because of the
1: problems that the institutions themselves have. Interesting. Chris, where can people keep up with everything that you're up to? You have your fingers in, in many pies. I keep reading about different ones. Uh, where should, where should people keep up with all of it?
0: Uh, come to American greatness, which is am com. You can find me, um, posting lots of nice pictures and other things uh (laughs) on twitter at the chris Buskirk, and uh yeah that's probably those are probably the two best places
1: wonderful well thank you for coming on the podcast and very glad we were able to tape it out here in the lovely desert that i want to spend more time in yeah thanks for having me it's fun Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We certainly went long. I think Chris and I were both busting for a piss there by the end. But uh, we we always love to bring you long conversations when guests have something interesting to say. And Chris, Chris certainly has interesting things to say. I highly recommend Keeping Up with American Greatness. It's a great publication. You'll always find interesting takes uh, from writers who wouldn't get a lot of airtime in the rest of the conservative movement. Uh, be sure to follow Chris on Twitter. There he posts many beautiful pictures of the world as it could be and once was not the way the world is, uh, which is always uh, good for, you know, putting the fire of God in you to go and destroy our enemies. Uh, be sure to check out the backlog of this podcast, as always, at AmericanMoment.org. Rate and review this show, five stars only, please. And if you write a comment in the review, we'll read it out on the show. If it's a question, we'll answer it. And be sure to email us at American moment or podcast at americanmoment.org if you uh, don't feel like putting it publicly thank you guys as always for listening it still blows my mind how many people listen every week for now 85 weeks i think or 84 weeks uh, we'll see you guys next week moment of truth is an american moment studios production filmed at the conservative partnership center Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.